Nigel Craig speaking here, a podcast of the sermon preached on the 1st of January 2017 at Belmont Presbyterian Church, entitled The Big Story, Part 1. Last week, Antonia and myself climbed Cave Hill in Belfast and were rewarded with a panoramic view of Belfast and beyond. We tried to locate Belmont Church Tower, but my binoculars weren't strong enough. I'm assured that you can see the tower from Cave Hill. Sometimes it's good to take a wide-angle view of things to see the big picture rather than getting lost in the details. Over the next couple of months, I'm going to attempt to give a panoramic overview of the big story of the Bible. It's what theologians call the meta-narrative, that is, the broad Christian account of God's interaction with humanity. The Bible, as you know, is divided into two parts before and after Jesus, Old and New Testaments, B.C. and Anno Domini. It starts with an account of the creation of the heavens and the earth and ends anticipating the second coming of Jesus to usher in the new heavens and earth. It was written over 1,500 years by more than 40 authors in three languages spanning the continents of Asia, Europe and Africa, and yet As our very own Dr. Desi Alexander at Union College, Belfast, notes, it relates, I quote, a remarkably unified story. On one occasion, when the famous 18th century evangelist George Whitfield was preaching to a crowd of 30,000, a man and his wife went up to investigate. When the man caught a little of the message, he said to his wife, Come on, dear, we don't stop any longer. He's talking about something that happened 1,800 years ago. What's that to us? That's perhaps how many of us feel about the Bible. It's a big black book, hard to understand, from a different time and culture, with the last bits written some 2,000 years ago. What's that to us? I believe it holds the key to our metaphysical search for meaning in this life, as have millions of others across the globe and throughout history. So let's try to get a grasp of its contents for our sake and the sake of our children. Today let's consider the first part, creation, and see how it relates to us. You may be surprised to discover that these chapters have a lot to tell us about our own lives, even in the 21st century. Creation. The opening lines of great sagas imprint themselves in our minds, in a galaxy far, far away, Star Wars. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times, Hard Times by Dickens. The big story of the Bible also begins with memorable words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. According to the first verse of the first chapter of the first book in the Bible, everything in the universe and on this earth had its source, had its origin in God. For source and origin, that's what the word Genesis actually means. According to Genesis God speaks and it happens without using any pre-existing materials. Creation ex nihilo. Naturally the question arises in many minds, how does the Bible's account of the origins of life relate to modern scientific theory of the origins of universe, solar system, this planet and biological life? Admittedly this is an area where there is debate amongst Christians. But let me give a very quick overview of the positions taken by people who believe the Bible is God's trustworthy word. 
there are some who take the opening chapters at face value, literally. That is, it took God six 24-hour days to do his work. They're often referred to as creationists, with a capital C. Others believe that a day represents an extended period of time. That's often referred to as the day-age theory. Whilst some propose that there are gaps in the account, allowing for a longer time scale, and you'll see that in the Schofield Reference Bible. Then there are Christians who do not believe that these chapters should be seen as scientific accounts, certainly uh, chapter 1, as it's not its purpose. They point out that Genesis chapter 1 is a, to quote John Stott, highly stylized and beautiful poem. Even John Calvin, the 16th century reformer, wrote, the Holy Spirit had no intention to teach astronomy. Many scholars believe Genesis was most likely written to challenge the ancient Near Eastern Mesopotamian creation myths of the time, which were, I quote, marked by polytheism and the struggles of the deities for supremacy. That's from the Illustrated Bible Dictionary. Instead of the heavens and the earth being made from two halves of the sliced up body of a pagan god, the Hebrew scriptures declared that they are the work of a transcendent holy God who made all things good. Historically, there has been a wide range of Christian interpretations regarding Genesis 1 and 2. But what unites them is a belief that all astronomical, geological and biological phenomena have their beginnings in the creative word of God. That our universe, world and all that it contains are not here simply by chance. In the Apostles' Creed we affirm, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So all Christians are essentially creationists, using a small c, not just those who take these chapters, and chapter 1 especially, literally. As someone with no scientific credentials, I feel ill-qualified to address the issue of evolutionary theory and how it relates to Genesis 1 and 2 and a Christian anthropology. It's safe to say that there are some Christians who reject Darwinian evolution and there are others who embrace it. The late eminent Norman C. Nevin, Emeritus Professor of Medical Genetics at Queen's University Belfast, famously argued against evolution on scientific, philosophical and theological grounds. Whilst there are others, such as Dennis Alexander, a Christian molecular biologist and emeritus director of the Faraday Institute for Science and Religion at St Edmunds College, Cambridge, who argues for theistic evolution. In other words, that God initiated and oversaw the process of evolution. This, however, questions the historic Christian belief that death, suffering and decay entered God's good creation as a result of the fall of humanity into sin. Although the Genesis account affirms a belief in monotheism, that is, one God, he's not presented as a single monad. Christians believe, yes, that there is one God, yet he is in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Whilst his full triune identity isn't fully disclosed until you reach the New Testament, there are numerous hints and pointers in the Old Testament. In fact, right here in the very first chapter of Genesis, God says, let us make man in our image. He's not speaking here to the angels. You can observe the teamwork of the Trinity 
The Father is in charge. The Holy Spirit hovers over the creation. And the Son, who is the Word of God, brings everything into being. Connection. Let's now consider the second point, connection. The connection between the Creator and the pinnacle of his creation, humanity. I know some of you are musical. If you imagine that Genesis chapter 1 is a piece of music, well, day 6 is the crescendo, with the creation of man being the FFF of musical notation. Human beings are different from the rest of the flora and fauna in this world, as they are made in the image of God. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. This is what gives every human being an innate value, and that is why human life is so precious from the earliest stages in the womb. But what does it mean for humans to bear the image of God, the imago Dei? Firstly, God has delegated careful stewardship of his creation to his, I quote, deputy manager, mankind. For that reason, Christians should be at the forefront of environmental conservation. Secondly, we are rational, self-conscious and intelligent beings. Thirdly, we're moral beings. That is, we can discern between right and wrong. We have consciences. Fourthly, we have the gift of creativity, which you see in art, architecture, music and so on. And we also have a deep appreciation for beauty. Next, we have also been made as social beings, just as the Father, Son and Holy Spirit live in relationship with one another, so should we. But most importantly, the image of God indicates that we are spiritual beings, that is, we are made for a relationship with our Creator God. At the outset of Genesis, the first humans, Adam and Eve, share unbroken friendship with one another and with God. These foundational chapters of the Judeo-Christian scriptures have also much to teach us about a biblical worldview on gender, sexuality and marriage. Hopefully these chapters will give some clarity as to why Christians choose to differ from the prevailing Western culture on such matters. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 27 we read, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female, he created them. Firstly, here we see that both male and female are made in the image of God. Therefore, there is a God-ordained equality of worth between the genders, yet still respecting their distinctiveness. Genesis 1.27 also affirms the creative God in act of God in defining our gender. It's God's call whether we're male or female, not our subjective choice. Sam Ferguson from the Gospel Coalition writes, The church must uphold the sacredness and integrity of created gender, but also offer compassion and hope. And thirdly, these chapters also lay the foundations for a Christian understanding of marriage and sexual intimacy. According to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, and indeed the testimony of Scripture, God gave sexual desire and action as gifts to be enjoyed within the sacred security of a male-female monogamous lifelong marriage covenant. I quote, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Although the monogamous principle was compromised in the Old Testament, 
Jesus reaffirms the original creation ordinance in Matthew chapter 19. If you look at Genesis 2 and 24, you can see the order set out here. Somebody leaves the family home, is united in the covenant of marriage, and then the two become one flesh, literally, as the marriage is consummated. Anything outside this pattern is contrary to God's will for humanity and especially his covenant people. But into all of our struggles, the gospel brings great hope. There is forgiveness and cleansing for all sin, for those who come in repentance to Jesus Christ. There is the love and support of the church granting us community in our struggles. And there's the indwelling Holy Spirit who empowers us to live in a way that brings glory to God in our private and public lives, in our living and in our legislating. One last point I would like to make about God's creation of humanity is that human beings were made for work and rest. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15 we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The late John Stott once observed, I quote, We need an authentic Christian philosophy of work. Too many Christians see their work as no more than a painful necessity. I wonder would that describe you on a Monday morning? The Catechism asks, What is the chief end of man? And of course we know the answer, to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. But do we simply glorify God by participating in worship on a Sunday? Well, yes, that's one key way of glorifying him. But what about the other six days of the week? What about Monday morning? What about Wednesday at three in the afternoon? Martin Luther, the German reformer, is alleged to have said, and I quote, The Christian shoemaker does, not, does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on his shoes, but by making good shoes, because God is interested in good craftsmanship. Although Luther may not actually have said these words, the sentiments are good. You can do any legitimate work to the glory of God, whether you are an ordained minister or not. So whenever you return to your work in this year 2017, whether in a classroom, a bank, an office, a hospital, a pharmacy, a farm, raising children, helping with the grandchildren, or even if you're retired, or whatever you do, you can do it all to the glory of God and the good of your neighbour. For as the scripture says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now the other side of this equation is that God lovingly commands us to rest. He gave us the weekly pattern. He created the world and all that it contained in six days, and he rested on the Sabbath. This may come as a gentle rebuke to those of us who are workaholics. In closing, why is there such dissonance between our world and that of the ideal set forth in Scripture in Genesis 1 and 2? In treating other people as those made in the image of God? In honouring God's pattern of gender and sexual practice? And in regulating our lives in a pattern of work and rest. To make sense of our world, 
to make sense of ourselves and our place in it, the Judeo-Christian tradition affirms that one must begin with the Creator. Genesis 1 and 1, in the beginning, God. John Calvin famously opened his institutes with the words, and I quote, Our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Note the order. Augustine of Hippo also famously wrote, Thou hast made us for ourselves, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. In our next session, we'll see why life is just not as it should be. Today we've spoken of creation and connection, but next week we'll be looking at the very sad story of disconnection. But we will ultimately be given hope, as all of this is superseded by God's plans for reconnection, primarily in his Son Jesus Christ, to whom be all the glory. Amen.